Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Our first reading today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 35 to 40. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Palm Sunday. My name is Jessica, and I'll be the first testifier, whatever you want to call us today. <laughs> so when Brittany first asked me to speak for Passion Sunday, with my particular lens, I thought to myself, I am not the right person for this. As far as I could tell, despite being a female person of color, my lens was completely dominated by my white, hetero, male understanding of scripture. I felt like even if I did have my own perspective, it wasn't going to be enough. Whether that means it wasn't different enough, systemic power shattering enough, Asian enough, or whatever other category I may represent. I felt a weight of responsibility, a duty to reflect every single Korean American woman millennial within these five to six minutes, and not only to represent, but in a matter to actively shatter the reigning system of cis, white, male, heterosupremacy in Christian theology. <laughs> and I thought, hell no. <laughs> but then I read the scripture. When Christ enters into Jerusalem, the moment we remember today on Palm Sunday, the disciples and all the people cheer and shout out with a fury of expectation. They scream out, the Lord is here. They are so excited because finally the Messiah is here the person they've been waiting for generations to come to finally dissolve the reigning terror of not only the Roman Empire, but a history of oppression, slavery, genocide, assimilation, and exile. These people have great expectations about who Christ is and what he is about to do. And these expectations are not without evidence. The scripture says, the whole multitude began to praise God for all the deeds of power that they had seen. They had already seen the power in Christ. They already knew what he could do, and having seen that, along with all their ideas of who the Messiah was to be, they expected something great to come. They clothed Christ with expectation. What clothes of expectation do we wear? Maybe the expectation is in your career, to fulfill the criteria we label as being successful. Or maybe the expectations are in your race, that somehow, because of the color of your skin, you are expected to live into a certain stereotype. Or maybe, in order to break the stereotype, the expectation becomes to counter that stereotype. <laughs> maybe the expectation is in your gender identity, that because you are born with a certain organ, you are expected to identify and behave a certain way. Or maybe it's in your sexuality, 
that because you do identify in some specific gender, you are then expected to love people of a specific gender. Too often it seems like we are granted only two choices, that because of a specific way we may look or act, we are either granted the choice of living up to an expectation or fulfilling another expectation by completely breaking it. Now, I'm not saying either of these are necessarily wrong. In fact, both of these can be life-giving. And these expectations do not have the power to define us, whether we match them or not. For the past season of Lent, we've been talking about being naked. What happens when we're naked? All the clothes are off. I think that's how God sees us. So the good and the terrifying news is that when God looks at us, God sees our naked selves. And that's not to say God doesn't see all the clothes we wear, because God sees all of those too, and God loves them, and God sees our nakedness. On Ash Wednesday 2015, just about a year ago, I was lying in bed in my dorm room. At the time, I was freshly single for the first time in about five years, and just starting to really plug myself into community at Urban Village Church. To this point, I had been overcoming a crippling onset of social anxiety on top of an already present chronic condition of suicidal depression, self-harm, and bulimia. In and out of hospitals, dropping in and out of college, trying this therapy and that, over the past decade, I had learned to wear my mental illnesses as a shroud, ashamed of who I had become, no longer the perfect, all A's, well-rounded, Christian girl I used to be and thought I was supposed to be. However, as I was lying on my bed that day, I suddenly had this overwhelming feeling that I was completely bare naked. In reality, I was fully clothed, but something in me felt utterly exposed, and somehow I knew God was telling me, I see you. I could feel my spirit, myself, whatever you may call it, scrambling to cover myself up and finding nothing to hide under. Ultimately, I surrendered, and I heard two words, now go. I remember thinking, go where? But as I was preparing for today, I began to wonder, what if God simply meant to show up? What if all they meant was reminding me that no matter what may be covering me, no matter what guards I may raise, or whatever sh shame or expectations may bind me, God sees and fully knows me down to my most naked self, with all the weight in the yucky things. God's intimate knowledge of who we are grants us the freedom to show up as we are right now, to claim that yes, I still struggle with getting up out of bed every morning, and yes, feeding myself once a day is enough, but three times a day? that's really hard. And that this whole adulting thing that I'm supposed to be doing apparently every single day, I'm not so sure I can do it. We can claim these things and still show up with our smelly armpits and glorious bedheads. God sees our naked selves. So then what could God expect of us but for you to be exactly who you are created to be, before, after, and in between any of those external garments are placed upon us, such that all we need to do to fulfill the expectation of God in our beloved created beings is simply to breathe. And every time we take a breath, God reminds us, I know you, I love you, I am creating with you, and damn, it's good. When Christ enters into Jerusalem, he knows what expectations people have for him. He also knows that he will not meet them. And he still shows up all the way to the cross. God invites us to show up with our full selves. That's not to say that it'll be easy. In fact, it'll probably suck really hard sometimes. And God knows this too. Will you all take a deep breath with me? As he came near and saw the city, 
He wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Good morning, everybody. My name is Gloria Feliciano. I'm one of those Puerto Ricans that uh, Brittany talked about. <laughs> um, so this scripture is kind of intense. Here, Luke drastically switches from a joyous procession where even the stones would have to shout out if people were to stop praising to Jesus filled with sorrow and driving the sellers from the temple. I always kind of think of Jesus flipping the tables at the temple. And then he starts to teach the people. I can relate really well to Jesus in this passage. Lamenting, as we've heard over the past few weeks, is something that we're told we can't do. I'm full of heartache, grief, and loss. I found out last week that my ex-boyfriend, Sam, passed away very unexpectedly under circumstances that I'd rather not talk about, and I'm devastated. I weep for Sam, and I too weep for the reasons that Jesus weeps. It is through the lens of my grief that I can clearly see the world around us is so much like Jerusalem unable to recognize what makes for peace in this world. Jesus' heartbreak is caused because we know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to act, but we don't do it. The path to the kingdom of God was there. Jesus explained it, and the people discarded it. We're discarding it. It's not always obvious that it's happening, and that's because we like to live with our head in the sand. In my grief, I've often been thinking about how Sam felt in the last moments of his life. This is all speculation on my part, but I honestly think that he died believing that his life was worthless. And that breaks my heart. I think he felt that way because it was often a theme of the conversations that we had while we were dating. Sam suffered from a severe mental illness called schizoaffective disorder. And the quickest way I can describe that for all of you is that it's like being schizophrenic and bipolar at the same time. Uh, after he graduated from college with honors, he couldn't find a job. I graduated the same year, and I couldn't find a job either. We sustained each other for that year of job hunting, and I know at that point in time, I also felt worthless. What was the point of going over $20,000 into debt from my liberal arts degree that clearly meant nothing? 
There were days when I didn't want to get up, days when I didn't leave the house, days upon days when I didn't shower. After one year, I was able to find a full-time job and Sam wasn't. I honestly can't tell you how many jobs Sam had in the four years that we were dating because I don't remember. It was a lot. He had a hard time holding down a job because he had difficulty interacting with people socially. This was mainly due to his mental illness. He felt like he was never good enough. The last I know about Sam's work history is that in December of 2014, he quit his job and he was never able to find another one. He felt worthless, largely because the way our society in the United States deems a person's value is by what they can contribute. He lost all hope. Sam's story is just one of many stories that are too many to count. I not only lament the loss of Sam's life, I lament that he felt that he wasn't worth it, his life wasn't worth it, and I lament that it is this culture of pull yourself up by your bootstraps that gave him this mindset and ultimately killed him. Not only am I lamenting, but I am raging. I am angry. I am angry that we live in a world that judges people's value on what they can produce or what they can't. Anger is something like lament that we are told should be hidden away in our society. There is such a thing as healthy anger and Jesus models that for us. Anger can be a sign that something is wrong. Jesus flipping tables in the temple was a prophetic sign that the leaders in Jerusalem were not following God's law of love and they needed to change their ways. This scripture is more than just about anger, though. It's also about a longing for peace. Peace starts with repentance. That's a recognition of what we are doing wrong and then changing it. When this change happens, that means good news for the poor, responsible handling of wealth, programs for the mentally ill, an eradication of homelessness, a place for all those considered outcasts. This is the world that beckons us to build the kingdom of God. If we don't get to that stage of recognition of repentance, we are just as doomed as Jerusalem was. Just as alluring as this world of peace is, the world of destruction should be revolting. The lack of remorse for our sinning against our neighbors by remaining silent and inactive on their behalf is what leads to this world of destruction. It looks like a man like Sam who felt that his life was worth nothing. The good news is, and there's always good news, we don't do this alone. God shows us the way and is with us the whole time. We have hope in a God that changes, transforms everything. We haven't given up hope. God is the one that will bring healing and wholeness. We have some of our own legwork to do. Nothing that is worth it comes easily. Be angry. Lament, cry out to God in your rage and pain, flip some tables, protest, change your ways, and always remember that we've got God on our side. When the hour came, he took his place at the table, and the apostles with him. He said to them, 
have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going, as it has been determined. But woe to him that he has betrayed. Then they began to ask one another, which one of them could be who would do this? So we're going to start off speaking about how I was scandalous. So this is how we're going to be introduced to one another. So I'm like your quintessential church, church kid. I'm a pastor's kid, was there in somebody's body in like some small church literally from the time that I was born. Like, wah, eyes open, I'm sitting in a pew. Um, and now how can somebody like that be scandalous, right? Well, because I asked too many questions. And when I was seven years old, I asked a question of my pastors, which they didn't appreciate, and it has to do with communion. So we had a pastor, and I was used to having communion, and he had passed away. Um, communion was a big thing in the tradition that I grew up in. And the new pastor comes in, and he's like, well, if you haven't been baptized, you can't have communion. That didn't sit well with my seven-year-old self. Um, seven-year-old me went to the scriptures, didn't see it there, didn't see anything about baptism, and went back to pastor man and told him, mm, I don't see it. If you can point it out to me, I'll believe you. But if not, well, maybe you should be telling people something a little bit different. <laughs> told you I was scandalous. <laughs> um, so when Brittany asked me to do this and I saw that there was scripture speaking about communion, I got really hyped because communion's always been like my favorite part of church. And it's because we're invited into this scandalous community with one another. Take a look around. Like seriously, look. <laughs> it is because of Jesus that we're all here. And when I think about that first communion table, I think about fishermen and tax collectors and people who were called harlots and, and people who weren't good enough for religious institution and establishment and Jesus did something scandalous. And then he went and told them, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Now this seemingly mismatched eclectic group of people is who we're called into community with and it's beautiful god calls it beautiful god calls us beautiful and it's scandalous the religious institutions aren't going to get it people who fall outside of the religious institution are like what the hell is this who, who why and it's because we understand the scandalous nature of the love of jesus so the thing that i want to encourage you to do this morning is to be scandalous because this is family. Make people gasp and question 
and get uncomfortable when they see who you're sitting around, who you're sitting with. And then make them gasp even harder and like clutch their chest because they see the way that you love. And it's not just lived here in this building. Make them gasp when you walk out on those streets after second service and protest and say, you know what? These bodies who may not look like my bodies are being harmed and we won't have it because of the love of Jesus. When you have, you know, folks who are addicts and you're there with them in the middle of addiction and like you're in that space with them, let people gasp because this isn't where good church people belong. They don't belong with addicts. They don't belong with the people who are disenfranchised, the people who are broken. You're supposed to be good church folks sitting in a pew or in chairs as we have here. Well. <laughs> and the reason I'm telling you to be scandalous is because Jesus did something brilliant. At the top end of that scripture passage that we just looked at, we were reminded of the new covenant that we were called into. And that covenant is, is defined by love. Love of God and love of other. We know that this is the sum of the law. Jesus made that real clear. We don't have any questions. Love was said, love was said again, love was said some more, and then love like, again. <laughs> How are you being called to extend love? How are you being called to invite people to the table? So going back to my own, like, you know, scandalous past, um, about two years or so ago, I was working as an educational back in New York. New York is where I'm from. And I had a number of students come out to me. And we had been in work together for years. And when I asked them why, what took them so long, they had shared, well, you're the most religious person we know. We had to make sure that you wouldn't abandon us. We had to make sure that you wouldn't leave us. Now, little did they know, like, two years later, you know, and this is, like, recently, that I would come out as being a black queer woman. But, like, we weren't even at that point in my journey. The point is, they needed to know that someone of faith wouldn't leave them. And in those moments, I was scandalous because I said, I see you and I love you, because that's what Jesus says to me. And that love extended to me doing research. Um, so the reason I moved to Chicago is because I'm at Loyola getting a master's in social justice. Praise God, I finished on my 30th birthday. And out of that flows my work with the Center for Inclusivity. And so we are a community that's dedicated to exploring the intersection of faith, gender identity, and sexuality because we see that there needs to be space where people of all faiths, all genders, all sexualities are welcome and to generate conversation and community at that intersection. This all plays into a bigger narrative. I want to push it the ways the table has become exclusive. That's been very much the case in our, in our Christian, not even Christian space, let's just be real, in religious space. It's an exclusion. This is the in, there's an out. Many more people find themselves out than in, right? But I want to push back and challenge people to set places at their tables for all. And when I say all, I mean, you know, that uncle who says things that are slightly inappropriate because of his formation as well as that queer kid who was afraid to have the conversation because they thought that they would be excluded. We set the table for all because that's, that's the family that we're called into. That's the work that we're called into. And in a time when many others say otherwise, I wanna dare to be in the places where the people are and say that the family of God is for you. You have community. You have a people. You have a place where you can say that I am loved, 
I am known, and I belong. So again, I pose to you the question, how are you called to love scandalously? What will you do to let others know that they have a place set at this table in the family of God? The fourth and final reading is from Luke chapter 23, verse 33, 4 through 33 and 39 through 47. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw that he had taken, saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. So I'm definitely no Jesus, I'm definitely no Jesus, my name is Christian, and yet I cannot identify with his, with his otherness and his welcoming message, but then I see him crucified, suffering, although he was certainly innocent. Is that what will happen to those of us that are different, to those of us that live in the outside, in the peripheries? To those of us that look through the window and watch the dominant group enjoy their privilege. Growing up and while in college, uh, back in Puerto Rico, I was always reminded of how different I was from others. Pato, pervertido, and other Puerto Rican slang for the gay F word. I was a nerd. I didn't fit the stereotype of Latin masculinity, or for that matter, Puerto Rican masculinity. I'm still shocked that my mom was surprised when I told her I was gay. I was bullied, I was called names, and even, even chased down the street a few times, literally running for my life. In college, I saw my friends getting beaten and acquaintances being killed just for being gay. It's true, that's just my experience. Some gay Puerto Ricans that lived in the capital may have had a better experience, but this is mine. About 14 years ago, I moved to the continental US to Iowa City, Iowa, an oasis for liberals in the middle of conservative Iowa. I could be gay, I could hold the hands of my boyfriend, gosh, I could even kiss him. The worst that would happen is that someone would stop and say, that's so cute. But then people started making comments about my accent, my ethnicity, and my behavior. So why are you so loud? Where are you really from? Like, really? What did you say? Your accent is so thick. Or when I went out to the gay club, I became an exotic creature, the passionate Latino. Oh my God, papi. Ugh, 
I never, ever had experienced racism before. I'm a light-skinned Latino. I have that privilege in Puerto Rico. I see it now. In Puerto Rico, I was gay. Here, I was a spick. The first time I heard that word, I laughed. I didn't know what it meant. I've had people compliment my accent. Oh, you have no accent. Oh my God, you speak so well. It's so cute how you say that. Can you roll your R again? And all of those things just remind me that I don't belong here. I'm an outsider looking into your world. And for the record, for the love of God, stop telling me how cute my accent is. So I'm a gay Puerto Rican who just moved to the suburbs. All of my fears are back. I look around to make sure someone won't get offended. Actually, I'm looking around to make sure we're safe. People in those areas will say, oh, it's just a few people, not the majority. But I think the recent primaries have demonstrated that there's a lot of hatred for those of us that are outsiders, that live in the peripheries. It only takes one. I don't know if you heard the news. A few days ago, a man was killed for speaking in Spanish to his son. His neighbor killed him. A Puerto Rican man, he was speaking to his son in Spanish, and he was killed for being an outsider. You know what his name was? Jesus. Jesus was killed for speaking Spanish to his son. Jesus was killed for being an outsider. This man was certainly innocent. So what do I do? Do I stay quiet and hope that everything will be better in the afterlife? Do I just live in hope of God's salvation with no action? I don't, I will not, I refuse. And I ask you to stand and say it with me, no, we will not. Jesus didn't stay quiet during his suffering. He didn't just suffer in silence. Señor, Señor, ¿por qué me has abandonado? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't blaming God. He was actually quoting a psalm that praises God's power. The centurion rightly knew that certainly this man was innocent. Certainty, I tell my stat students, means there's a 100% chance that it will happen. For example, it is certain that I did not win the Powerball. It is certain that I am standing here in front of you. It is certain that a trans woman of color will be killed or be the object of hatred. It is certain that a parent will go without food in order to feed their children. It is certain that a black teenager wearing a hoodie will be killed. Certainly, these people are innocent. So what do we do when confronted with their innocence? We scream, Señor, Señor, ¿por qué los has abandonado? My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken them? Not as a way to blame God, but to remind us of God's power. And we take action. We don't just save ourselves. We promise those with us, next to us, to stand with them. Because they are certainly innocent. Will there still be suffering? Of course. But we will not suffer in silence. The crucifixion was a loud suffering, not a quiet one. And it's one that brings hope 
and salvation. It brings transformation. Jesus calls us to sit next to him right now in suffering, but not in silence. Now I will go and sit, and it will hurt, but I won't stay quiet. In the face of injustice and suffering, I will shout, and I will scream with Jesus, with Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit, en tus manos, Señor, encomiendo mi espíritu.